Howdy friends, welcome to Experience Design with Tony Dosat. I happen to be Tony Dosat. If this is your first time tuning in or you're back for more, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Now, some housekeeping. This podcast is ad-free and my plans are to keep it that way. However, I do want to tell you about something. Over and over again, I get questions in my DMs like, how do I become a UX designer? Or how do I get hired as a UX designer? Or I don't know why I'm not getting hired, etc., etc., etc. You get the idea. Well, never fear. I am creating a course for all of you UX design hopefuls out there. It hasn't launched yet, obviously. But I am running a special little promotion for all of you listeners. If you head over to HiredUX.com, H-I-R-E-D-U-X.com, and pop in your email address, you will be the first to know about the launch, and you'll get 50% off the entire course price. Now then, with that out of the way, let's just jump into this week's conversation. My guest this week has built annotation, active learning, and machine learning systems with machine learning-focused startups, as well as giants like Amazon, Google, IBM, and most major phone manufacturers. If you speak into your phone, or if your car parks itself, or if your music is tailored to your taste, or if your news articles are recommended for you, then there is a really good chance that he has contributed to this experience. He holds a PhD from Stanford focused in human-in-the-loop machine learning for healthcare and disaster response, and himself is a disaster response professional in addition to being a machine learning professional. Please help me welcome to the Experience Design Podcast the author of Human-in-the-Loop Machine Learning, Mr. Robert Monroe, or Dr. Robert Monroe. (laughs) Just Robert is fine. It's great to be here today. (laughs) Yeah, we'll go with we'll go with Robert. All right, cool. Well, um, thank you so much for being here. And it is an interesting opportunity that I have because a lot of the guests on the Experience Design podcast so far have been designers, project managers, authors, and the like. But as far as a machine learning professional, this is a first, and I'm really excited to be able to have you on and dig into this. I'm delighted to to be able to uh, contribute then. Uh, I think the the design aspects of machine learning are really overlooked. Uh, So hopefully I'll be able to enlighten your listeners on that. So to start, I figure we should probably level set with everyone. So Robert, what is machine learning? (laughs) Right. Uh, So machine learning is is a very broad set of algorithms and techniques uh, that allow computers to to generalize their their knowledge and, and take actions. And that's obviously a very high level uh, description. Um, More practical level, uh, the vast majority of machine learning algorithms that have been used out there, uh, whether it's the speech recognition on your phone, uh, the maps that you're driving with uh, when you use a search engine or if your car parks itself, uh, all those kinds of applications of machine learning are powered by humans. Uh, There's a specific type of machine learning called supervised machine learning. Uh, and what that supervised part means is that humans were able to provide the examples. 
Uh, so in the uh, autonomous vehicle example, it knows what a street sign is because humans have spent hundreds, maybe thousands of hours looking at videos and highlighting where that street sign is. Uh, ditto to the pedestrians, ditto the, uh, the lane markers uh, in that road. Uh, and so it's on the back of, of all that human effort uh, that the machines are then able to automate that experience. So is it always the case? I imagine, you know, with AI coming in, helping out machine learning. So, so in which cases, when humans aren't involved in that work, are we seeing? Um, there's very few use cases that don't have um, human interaction. Um, the ones that uh, are widely used uh, tend to be trend analysis and, and things like that. Uh, so for example, um, the Twitter trending algorithm probably doesn't have human intervention. Uh, it's probably just looking mm. at what's the most frequent um, uh, over a given period of time. So that kind of uh, trend analysis and cluster analysis is a kind of machine learning. Um, that doesn't involve humans. Um, and then there's one other kind um, uh, called reinforcement learning. And rather than learning from humans, it learns from the environment. Uh, so if you've seen a computer um, play a video game, a lot of the time it's just learning to play from, the, from that video game like by trial and error. So it loses tons and tons of games um, in order to work out the best way to win a game. Uh, but these are really small areas and they're not that widely used. Um, uh, and as you can imagine, um, you wouldn't want to use reinforcement learning that can fail again and again to teach a car how to drive. It would kill a lot of people um, by trial and error. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm sure maybe that they use little bits of reinforcement learning at some of the autonomous vehicle companies. Um, but uh, you know, overwhelmingly, like I said, more than 90% of machine learning that's out there is, is powered by humans. How would you articulate the difference between AI and machine learning? I mean, you know, if you asked 12 people working in the field, you'll get 13 different responses. But um, <laughs> uh, so I, with that caveat, I'll, uh, I will say that machine learning is um, one component of, of artificial intelligence. Um, so AI uh, will also cover things which are perhaps purely robotic. Um, they're not using machine learning, any in uh, what we would call uh, a machine learning algorithm. Uh, they might have some other kinds of like symbolic processing and reasoning, um, which allows them to, to make decisions and, and take actions. Um, that should absolutely be, be considered you know, a form of, of artificial intelligence. Um, but when we think of machine learning, it's uh, typically a narrower set of uh, statistically driven algorithms. What does it take to have humans and machines effectively work together? It is incredibly hard to have humans and machines work together um, in, in terms of the interpretations on, on both sides. Um, how do humans in, interpret uh, machine output and, and how do machines interpret human output? And we get a lot of this uh, from advances in the, the user experience community um, and even a lot from the, the psychological community. Uh, so to, to give a really concrete example, um, so let's think about the, the self-driving car example. And we have someone uh, looking at image after image after image of trees and bushes um, and billboards uh, being asked, is this a street sign? Is this a street sign? Is this a street sign? And they can be primed to say no. Um, uh, they could miss a street sign uh, because of the way that they are being asked for information. Um, and so if uh, all of a sudden they miss a street sign, um, and then all the self-driving cars learn on that, uh, then they're going to miss that street sign and similar ones. Uh, so it's a real problem. 
in, in, just in the kind of like the basic interface and this ordering effect, um, which you have to, to care about for prime in. Uh, that's just one dimension to it. Uh, then obviously um, you'll need to consider what part of the world you're showing someone the street signs from and what part of the world uh, the person doing that annotation comes from. Uh, I could annotate signs in any of the countries I've lived in, but I certainly couldn't annotate uh, signs in you know 90% of the world. Um, I don't know what all those, those different street signs mean. Uh, and then finally, we, we really want our AI to be smarter than people. And this is a problem because uh, it's pretty hard uh, to make a machine learning algorithm smarter than the data that it's trained on. That's kind of your natural ceiling. However good the data is, that's, that's how good the algorithm will be. But for an example like autonomous vehicles, we want them to be better drivers than, than any people. Um, and part of that comes on the back of sensors, but part of it also comes on the back of uh, the wisdom of the crowds. Uh, so, for example, one person might be, say, 90% accurate in identifying all the street signs. Uh, but if you have 10 people look at all the images, uh, you can look at how much they agree with each other um, and then statistically uh, get a data set, which might be 99 or 99.9% confident as a whole, um, even though no individual person was, was more than 90% accurate. Uh, so, mm. it's th so it's this combination of... Kind of wisdom in the crowd, statistics, uh, user experience, worrying about priming effects, uh, worrying about the social cultural background of the, the humans uh, annotating the data. Uh, it's a combination of all of these um, that needs to be solved uh, in, in order to uh, create accurate machine learning applications. Uh, and this is true for, for any of the use cases I mentioned. So let's take that example of the autonomous vehicle self-driving car. If I were to have that vehicle here in the states where I am in Texas, and magically I could transport it to London, would it be smart enough to drive the streets the exact same way it does here, but with all of the constraints of the streets in London and traffic and signs there? Or is it site-specific to where that, like like you said, that, that the cultural implications, how it's different, are we taking that into account with all of the cars? Or that, is it that's, just... a, that's a great observation as well. So uh, in addition to all the earlier problems, it's also uh, a question of where you selected that raw data from. Uh, so the short answer is no. If, if you trained a car in, in, in Texas or here in, in California and you immediately portaled that uh, to London, um, it would not know how to drive there. I mean, if you're on the wrong side of the road, it wouldn't recognize the, um, the street signs, uh, maybe even the, the traffic lights are different enough there that it would have trouble understanding them. Um, the, the roads would be in different conditions. It's probably never seen cobblestones before. I mean, that's, uh, that's a pretty right. tough <laughs> use case. Yeah. So what are the implications then with construction and with sometimes, you know, perhaps they're not following all of the guidelines of how, how to steer people in different detours, et cetera. Yeah, so uh, this is probably the single biggest problem for autonomous vehicles is uh, all these uh, many, many edge cases. Uh, so highway driving is, is not a problem. Um, all of a sudden, right. a sign saying, you know, every third Wednesday, you can't park here uh, between you know, 11 a.m. And, and 1 p.m. Um, yeah. Uh, that is, is incredibly complicated. That, that, and that's the kind of... Um, 
That's the kind of signs we have here in the streets in San Francisco. Um, uh, <laughs> and, and at least that's somewhat normalized. Uh, but then if something is under construction and maybe it's even a handwritten sign, um, you know, saying, please take this detour at, uh, to the left, that's really, really hard for, um, uh, for autonomous vehicles today. Uh, and so that's why uh, a lot of people believe that we're not going to have fully autonomous vehicles uh, anytime soon, or at least not for every possible road and condition. Uh, maybe they'll be autonomous on the highways and, and we'll still have to keep them on the, on the back streets. Right. And uh, it's, so, it's, so it's very much a human in the loop process. At what, at what moment then uh, does the car know that it's uncertain um, and can back off and, and ask the human driver to take over? You know, I'm just thinking of all these different edge cases, which as designers, that's what we I, 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 you know, attempt to do. Right. Um, where perhaps a sign is graffitied you know, beyond recognition right? or it's broken or whatever it is. There are so many things to consider. You know, I'm of the same mind. I think with autonomous vehicles right now, we're not there. I think we will get there. And I think my kids' kids, when I'm a grandparent, hopefully I'm around uh, for that. <laughs> I truly believe that there will come a time where they will be baffled that they let us drive. <laughs> I, I think so too. I'm sure there's some good analogies in some of the complicated machinery. Like if, if you went into a highly automated factory today, um, let's say they're manufacturing cars even, and, and looked at the, the speed at which uh, people were, uh, the robots rather, are putting together cars. And just to, to imagine that every single step there used to be a person and, and just all the inherent danger and in having all that machinery around. Um, yeah, I, I think... Uh, people feel the, the same way uh, about, you know, why was it that you only had to take a half hour exam um, in order to be given permission to drive half a ton of speeding uh, metal and glass uh, down a public road? It's it's an amazing thing. And obviously, the example that we've been riffing on are the autonomous vehicles. But like I said in the intro, there's so many different examples and ones that you've worked with be it voice, um, phone manufacturers, whatever it is, all this, to me, leads to perception and trust. So how important is that trust? How do you gain that trust? How do you design for that trust and annotate all of these things with that in mind? Yeah, and this is the tricky part because humans don't trust AI. I think it was one of the, the autonomous vehicle manufacturers uh, that said that humans won't trust self-driving vehicles and, until they have 1% as many accidents, or that they're 100 times better, to put it yeah. another way. Yeah. Um, and, um, and we see this in other places too. So in, in medical diagnoses, um, people aren't going to trust uh, machine learning diagnoses and, until they're orders of magnitude better than, uh, than, than human diagnoses. Um, and I think part of that is because it's different. Uh, the pattern of errors machines make are different to the pattern of errors that, that humans make. Um, and it's that uncanniness that I think gives a lot of people unease, can imbue machines with, with intent uh, that they don't have, or just completely underestimate how much the machine is getting right because of uh, one small thing that it gets wrong that is easy for a human. I can't imagine, you know, when you tell someone what you do and what your expertise is, I can imagine some scenarios where someone goes, oh, so you're the guy that's going to take all the jobs away and give them to machines. <laughs> do you ever get that? 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I you know, I I think this is a this is a big fear, and I I think there's a wonderful an- analogy um, that is before AI goes back to kind of like the, the start of, of automation from the uh, the book uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, so I don't know if you remember the book and not the original film, but the the remake with Johnny Depp. Um, the whole storyline of Charlie's family being poor in the first place is because his dad used to have the job uh, screwing the top onto toothpaste um, uh, in a factory line. Uh, right. But he got put out of work when uh, when a robot uh, was brought in that could do his job for him. Uh, so that's why they were poor. That's why Charlie had to scrounge for, and get that golden ticket and, and, and was eventually successful. And I think that the most forgotten part at the end of the film is that that robot kept breaking down and Charlie's dad got a better paying job supervising that robot so i think um Mm. i think that can apply to a a lot of what we're seeing in automation today jobs are going to change but there have been a lot of big technical changes in the past where absolutely was very disruptive for a a short period um i do think that's something we need to to protect people in but uh, none so far at least have resulted in in long-term uh job losses and opportunities you know, to, so to to take the, the example of, of, of self-driving cars uh, so I think the most at at risk jobs there are long-haul transport um, uh, people who are driving you know, really large trucks and, and, and trailers um, that's the the prime candidate for something that you can automate and if they're just doing the highway parts that's something that I think AI can do easier than, than also trying to go in the in the streets um, so obviously, uh, for people like that, um, there there should be via their companies and, and via the governments uh, protections and and, and uh, programs in place so they can find other work. Uh, in terms of how much work in total, though, um, you know, uh, at the moment at least, like I would imagine that there are always going to be you know tens of thousands of people. Uh, whose job is to to look at videos uh, from autonomous vehicles to to annotate those. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure that um, the overall number of people employed um, will will go down. Um, it could go up. Um, uh, I don't think anyone could right. honestly, honestly give a give a good estimate. Um, but there's yeah a lot of different directions it could go. I think you're dead on there, and it's it's something that the tech community is going to have to you know answer to more and more because of that trust, because of that fear. But we will evolve, we will adapt, and we will create new jobs in fields that didn't even exist. Right. Which is why it's it's a very exciting time, I I think. I, absolutely. And I mean, if we do it right, AI is taking away most of the, the boring and repetitive things. And so what's left for humans right. should, should be more engaging, uh, more interesting. And then it's this beautiful feedback loop where for whatever task, AI doesn't know something, the human takes it over, the AI can learn by, by following that and, and become smarter. Man, this is something I could talk to you forever about machine <laughs> learning. I mean, unfortunately, um, we don't have all the time in the world, but two questions for you. One, where can people get human in the loop machine learning? Uh, so if you go to many.com, uh, many publications are uh, the publisher of the book and you should be able to search there for human in the loop machine learning. Uh, I think if you, you just simply type into your favorite search engine, human in the loop, machine learning, uh, it'll probably uh, be one of the, the first couple of results that comes up there. Awesome. Thank you for that. And I, I would encourage all the listeners to go check that out if you're interested in this conversation. 
And I think all designers uh, should be. <laughs> Let's just say that. I think so too. I mean, we we need good designers in machine learning. Um, a, a lot of the people building machine learning algorithms and, and interfaces for human feedback are trained engineers who are doing their best but have no design training. Um, and you know, they are the ones uh, determining how accurate the data is and therefore how accurate the models is. Uh, so that the more input we can get from the design community, the better. Wholeheartedly agree. Now, my final question for you is a question that I ask every guest, which is, what object or thing that you own or possess that is non-digital means the most to you or has impacted your life the most and why? <laughs> um, I have a six-week-year-old kid. Uh, does that count or does it have to be an object? Is that too easy? <laughs> no, you know, I've had people as responses before, so we can go with that. I, I, I'd get in trouble with my wife if I didn't say that. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, that is one thing that is so true is how much they impact our lives. Congrats on the newborn. Thank you. Thank you. It is, it is incredible in, in everything except the amount of sleep. It's, it's meaning that I get. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I hope everyone goes out, buys the book. And hey, I hope you can come back on the show again sometime. Oh, I, I would love that. It was great to be here today. Thanks for having me on. That will do it for this week, friends. Thank you again to my guest, and thank you again to all of you tuning in. I can't tell you how valuable you are to me. I would also like to give a really special shout-out to all of the new patrons of the show, including, of course, my new executive producer, Brian Sullivan. Now, if you're wondering how you might best support the show, head over to patreon.com slash xdpodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash xdpodcast. I also have a link in the show notes. And check out all the perks of becoming a patron of the show here. And listen, if Patreon doesn't float your boat, if it's not your thing, I get it. But a subscribe or a view or share... It's always just as meaningful as something like Patreon to me. It really is so impactful. So with that, I can't wait to have you back next week. But until then, friends, stay curious. Experience Design is part of XD Media, LLC. All opinions are my own and do not reflect those of my current or former employers.